Welcome to episode 114 of Decentralized Revolution, a podcast from the Libertarian Party Mises Caucus and Mises PAC. I'm Liam McCullum and I'm your host for today. And my guest is Joseph Solis Mullen. Uh, we're going to be talking about his forthcoming book, The Fake China Threat, and whether we ought to be worried about China. Um, Joseph is a current graduate student in the economics department at the University of Missouri and is an independent researcher and journalist. His work can be found at the Mises and Libertarian Institutes, Antiwar.com, the Journal of the American Revolution, Journal of Libertarian Studies, and the Quarterly Journal of Austrian Economics. I really hope you enjoy this one. Uh, here's the interview with Joseph. I, I tweeted a couple days ago or a couple of weeks ago that Scott Horton needs to finish up his book on how uh, the U.S. provoked the war in Ukraine because he's going to need to write another one here shortly about how the war in Taiwan was provoked. And then um, I believe it was Kyle Matovic. He, he responded in the comments by saying that I that you have this covered. So I wanted to bring you on to discuss your upcoming book in uh, China and U.S. relations. Um, so why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Well, Liam, thanks for having me on. Uh, it's great to be here. Um, I'm a political scientist, economist, uh, research fellow at the uh, Libertarian Institute. Uh, I'm also a PhD candidate in history. Uh, I've been writing for several years. Doing, I started doing freelance work at uh, places like the Mises Institute before I joined the Libertarian Institute. And I covered various things, a lot of economic issues, if you look at my early stuff. Uh, at the same time, I started to notice a sea change that was going on. And I did, I did study a lot about China just because of its importance to the global economy. But I started to notice that its coverage in the uh, corporate press was starting to change. And this was back around 2019. And it stopped being China, vital partner, China, you know, future responsible stakeholder. Yada, 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 to China. And, and this was important, too, because Donald Trump's uh, initial attempt to be hawkish on China was met by a lot of pushback from the corporate media, who kind of made him sound like uh, some sort of dinosaur who just didn't understand the way the world worked now. And so it was interesting tracking that change. Uh, if you follow like the publication of books about China, especially popular books, they've the, the floodgates have opened. It's become a new cottage industry writing books about how scary China is. And if you go back five years ago, just it was it was nowhere. It was nowhere on the horizon. So uh, I started working on uh, sort of analyzing China uh, back in 2020. And I spent the the past few years then uh, working on a collection of pieces, which eventually I turned into the book, uh, which is going to be coming out in a few months here, the fake China threat, and it's very real danger. Uh, so suppose we can go from there. I don't know if that's that's a good enough introduction, yeah. but that's yeah, who I am. That's, that's really good. I am I am just curious before we dive into um, the history of China and, and the U.S., what initially drew you into libertarianism and, and foreign policy? Well, public choice theory, uh, number one, uh, just again, just being coming from the economics and political science side of things, just understanding decision complexes as being just a, a product of, of incentive environments. Uh, a lot of times you read about uh, sleepwalking toward conflict, forces of history or things pushing people. And it, it's, re it's really not that way at all. When you really dig down into the nitty gritty, it's, it's a lot of people pursuing uh, career paths. It's a lot of people looking out for the budgets of their departments, think tanks, trying to get money from certain organizations that you know, happen to have conflicts of interest. So it's, it's all fairly straightforward stuff. And as far as being libertarian, I, I simply looked at it as uh, you know, being a, a, a pretty hardcore free marketer, even growing up. Uh, I looked at libertarianism as, as sort of the obvious, optimal way uh, to not only avoid things like uh, tyranny, but also to create the maximum possible well-being. Uh, if, if a private actor makes a wrong decision, um, it's, it's really not that big a deal, even the biggest private actor. But if the government chooses a policy and that happens to be the wrong policy, you can have millions of people die. Uh, the state is very, very powerful and people simply don't appreciate it. Um, and I, I've, while, while initially when I was younger, I'm in my 30s now, I did have some sympathy for people like um, like Popper, 
who recommended like sort of incremental tinkering. The problem is that 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 is that that creates this whole slippery slope and it, you know, any now you, when you create a when you create a government program now, it just it, it attracts a whole lobby of people around it and you'll just never be able to get rid of it, even if yeah, you tried you, to. Yeah. Can you summarize just uh, the argument behind the incremental tinkering really quick for oh, those who don't know? Yeah, sure, sure. So the idea was that you could very carefully calibrate things like social and economic policies and you could just make a tiny little change, wait and see what happened maybe make a tiny little change some more. And like theoretically, academically, that's totally fine. But in the real world, that's that's simply not what happens. That's not what happens. If a program is begun, it, you will never get rid of it because it, it attracts interests and, it, and it's worth tons and tons of money. So, I mean, it's, yeah. it's not, well, not something that you want to create. You don't want to create the opportunity for people to extract rents from the state. You want them engaged in meeting real demands for real products, which will happen most uh, easily and most efficiently in a free market environment. So, And we've also seen kind of the, the failures of incremental tinkering, I'd say, in, in foreign policy. Um, specifically, uh, you, you just look to the way that the foreign policy establishment exploited 9-11 and then obviously have gone into more than seven countries afterwards. So, I mean, that just demonstrates it within the last 20 years. But um, so so you recently wrote an article about um, uh, Rothbard's works on Taiwan and what he was writing about in, in the 1950s. And I really have a, a cursory understanding of... Um, China US relations over the last 200 years. Uh, just what you would learn from obviously like the, the government schools, which are um, going to be not, I, I mean, they're not going to be the full story. But then I've, I've learned a lot from like antiwar.com and the Libertarian Institute. So I'm wondering if maybe a, a good way to look at the necessary history to understand where we're at today is to uh, talk about what Rothbard was writing about at the time and what they were observing and to juxtapose what was happening in the 1950s with today. Um, so, so what is the article about? Um, it's titled taking notes out of Rothbard's Taiwan playbook. So Rothbard wrote a series of articles uh, in the 1950s uh, addressing the notion that following the quote unquote loss of China, this was in 1949, communists are victorious in the civil war on the mainland. Uh, Chiang Kai-shek and the nominally Republican KMT forces evacuate out to the outer ring of islands. The largest one was Formosa, which we call Taiwan. Uh, there was an active China lobby and the China lobby was aligned with uh, Chiang Kai-shek's associates. And they argued very strongly for weapons to help him actually reconquer mainland China. And if you go to the Libertarian Institute and you Google Joseph Solis Mullen and you look for my articles, the most recent one that I wrote was uh, the fake China threat then and now where I talk about the 1950s in a more expansive way. And I draw the parallels today because I think they're very compelling. The, the rationale that the Hawks give is still the same as it was then which is that, uh, you know, if we don't defend Taiwan, they're going to conquer, uh, the mainland is going to, for some reason, like spread out and start conquering the Philippines and Japan and Korea, all of this, you know, totally speculative stuff. And it's interesting that when you look at, and so Rothbard, of course, takes those, those arguments on. The idea that, well, we need to defend the Pescadores and we need to defend Kamoy and we need to defend Matsu and we need to defend Taiwan and just it never stops. And, you know, the idea is that they're going to island hop their way all the way to California. And so he takes on this idea. And, you know, obviously uh, no one is is sympathetic, at least no one I know is sympathetic to, to living under communist rule. But that's not really the question here. The question here is what is in the, you know, quote unquote national interest. And that's another thing that, you know, I had mentioned public choice theory. One of the things I point out in the most recent piece was that uh, these decisions are oftentimes because they're so peripheral, they don't have to be serious decisions. It can literally just be the calculation that, well, people in my district uh, really feel strongly about this or, well, there's a weapons contractor that's in my district or in the case of Eisenhower, he calculated, uh, and this is in the words of James T. Patterson, who is not a libertarian historian. He is a statist historian from Cornell and Oxford. He writes that Eisenhower 
viewed formalizing the initial U.S. defense agreement with Taiwan as something that he had to do because it would have been politically risky to do nothing at the time. And this was during the first Taiwan Straits crisis, which was provoked by Chiang Kai-shek bombing mainland China and trying to blockade the southern ports there. And so then when the communists retaliated, you had uh, pressure groups, uh, including Henry Luce, who was the editor of Life Ma of Time magazine, which I know Time magazine now is like, yeah, whatever, it's a joke. At that point, it was like the magazine. It was the biggest magazine. So you have a guy who is a major public opinion maker telling people that, like, this is absolutely imperative. We can't let them push around the Taiwanese like this. And uh, I, I put links in the article to all the stuff about the old China lobby, comparing it to the Taiwan lobby today. And it really makes perfect sense, right? If you if you can spend a few million dollars, you know, getting sympathetic academics to write pieces telling you how the Americans should defend you, that's a lot cheaper than floating multi-billion-dollar carriers, strike forces, all that other stuff yourself. It's just it's intelligent policy from their perspective. I oppose it. I don't think it's good policy from an American's perspective, uh, you know. But as far as the Taiwanese go, it's kind of a genius use of money. Very economical. So I go into that. I have a few articles all in the same all in the same train there with Rothbard's initial criticism of the rationales that were being given by people like Henry Luce in the 1950s. And then I kind of did an updated version then and now where I show like I pulled some like just terrific quotes that are just, you know, we have to fight them over here so we don't fight them over there. You know, soon they'll be in San Francisco and Seattle and Kansas City. And it's like, what on earth are you guys talking about? Um, so so what what is the rationale that is used today? Um, if you could like steel man the argument for oh, okay. um, defending Taiwan, what would it be? And, and who are the parties pushing it? Because um, it appears that the Republicans like to paint the Democrats as being um, kind of pro-China. And, you know, you hear stories of certain politicians like Biden, you know, being bought out by the Chinese or whatever. And it does seem like there was a, an apparent shift in 2019, like you said. So is, is there also maybe different approaches to Chinese policy, even within the foreign policy establishment? Um, and, and how would you summarize those positions? Well, first, I'll just say that Last year, maybe it was two years ago now, I believe it was the American conservative ran a cover story about how the Bush family was enthralled to the Chinese. <laughs> so uh, I'll just say this. There, there was there was a division uh, among Republicans. So there was a, sort of an Eastern establishment corporatist wing of which Bush was kind of representative of. And they very much agreed with uh, sort of the liberal internationalist Clintonites that the best way to deal with China was to integrate them into existing global structures and essentially to try and use exposure to capitalism to internally transform China per like uh, development theory. Uh, and this sort of went along with a whole host of other theories like democratic peace theory and all these other things that together are supposed to liberal institutionalism, all these different interrelated theories that together were supposed to make China's rise peaceful, which is uh, a euphemism for saying, uh, you know, subservient to U.S. Uh, security interests, uh, much in the same way that Europe is uh, largely uh, dependent on, on U.S. security uh, decisions. Um, this was you know, never going to happen. And there were there were a lot of Republicans at the time uh, who were in sort of more of the paleo conservative vein who said or uh, Newt Gingrich, he, he which he wasn't a paleo conservative, but he, he was a very different kind of Republican in the 1990s. He was very hawkish on China, thought these were just the dumbest ideas uh, and was uh, uh, very pro uh, Taiwan independence. Um, I, I can't remember the quotes, but from the late 90s, I mean, he just had some really silly things to say about that. So I'll say this, there's always been a slight division within the Republican Party about that. The Democratic Party, less so. Um, that they, they were obviously very hawkish, uh, but they were also very much more practical, I guess I would say, when it came to China. Uh, you can read Dean Acheson's white paper about his sort of thoughts on how, how China went the way that it did and how we should kind of just be friends with the new communists in China 
he, he argued that it would be very politically risky for Truman to do this. But he said, look, this would help undermine the Soviets. So 20 years before Nixon and Kissinger got the idea to try and split the communist bloc, Dean Acheson was already saying, like, look, we should try and use this situation that happened. We couldn't control it. We can't control it. You know, we should try and turn them into an, uh, a, quote, Asian Tito, you know, which uh, for those of your listeners, Yugoslavia's uh, Communist Party, uh, Josef Braz Tito, uh, was sort of a huge pain in Stalin's butt uh, in, in the Balkans. And so the idea they, the idea was to use him against uh, use Mao against Stalin. But so the Democrats have always been a little more open minded on just dealing with with the Chinese. Um it's actually interesting. The Republicans really man- use the loss, the quote unquote loss of China uh, as a way to really uh, capitalize uh, on domestic political opportunities. Uh, so I find it interesting that, you know, the more things change, the more things stay the same. Again, even though Joe Biden has been certifiably crazy aggressive or Jake Sullivan or whoever calls the shots, they've been crazy aggressive with the Chinese. To hear someone like Kevin McCarthy tell it, you know, Joe Biden is basically she's Xi Jinping's sock puppet. Um, But again, I I think you don't have to look very far or look very deeply to see that this is just, you know, taking advantage of the fact that most Americans don't know anything about it and that it's easy uh, to take shots at someone for being, you know, quote unquote, really weak, just like they took shots uh, on about Biden and then being weak on Russia and stuff. And that that's why Russia invaded Ukraine was because Biden was so weak. You know, and it's like no one who knows anything about this, who's not a shill for the establishment, will will tell you that that's actually what was happening there. Yeah, it's so. it's really fascinating. Just something that I've observed is that um, Democrats always seemed and, and Republicans always seem to play this. Um, I, I mean, it's it's a controlled opposition effect, whether it's intentional or not, where they're always arguing in the same direction. Um, so the Republicans, for instance, in Afghanistan during the withdrawal, the argument from like conservative Inc was that the problem was that Biden, um, he, he withdrew too quickly, right? Like I, I heard that from the daily wire crowd a lot, but, but we all know now that, that Biden actually delayed the original plan and, and withdrew during fighting season. And that's why it was so disastrous. And, and the Pentagon now even admit, admits this. So they always seem to argue in the same direction. Um, it's just really fascinating how it plays out. But uh, you did mention Kissinger, and I am wondering what you make of um, his recent, you know, switch from being uh, opposed to an intervention in Ukraine to now being uh, fully hawkish and how how this plays into the overall strategy that Kissinger believes we should keep China and Russia separate, because it does appear that the Ukraine conflict has uh, brought China and Russia together. So what do you make of that recent development? Do you think that there's still some long-term thinking about trying to keep them separate or do they realize they've lost on that front? So now it's, um, they're, they're going all in or, or how, how do you rationalize that? Well, last year, Kissinger had had a full page Actually, I think it was two pages, actually, in the Wall Street Journal, where he essentially, and he took tons of heat, he took tons of heat for this, but basically saying exactly what we would say about why the war happened and, you know, all that stuff. So he was totally opposed. And as you say, he now has sort of changed changed his tune. But I think it's important to know that his rationale is not that uh, the United States is made safer or Ukraine, something like that, democracy. That's not his argument. His thinking is that Ukraine has become essentially a little bit too powerful and that it would be un, unwise, unsafe for you know U.S. security interests to have a powerful independent state like that and that it would be better to subsume them into these institutions that the United States controls. So it's really, it's really a mechanism of control from, from Kissinger's point of view. It's not about, you know, the... I love the Ukrainians or democracy or something like that. It's, it's strictly in terms of control. He is a hardcore realist Uh, in terms of Russia and China getting pushed close together. Absolutely. And he, he pointed that out. Um, Actually, Trump had talked with Kissinger prior to taking office. And according to Trump, 
Kissinger told him, yeah, you need to make friends with the Russians to, you know, undercut the Chinese, you know, do the opposite of what we did back in the 70s. And I don't I don't I don't approve of doing either of those things. But if you told me we could have one of two worlds, one in which the Chinese and Russians are on the same team or one in which what is it Bismarck said? Bismarck said in a world of three power blocks, it is always better to find oneself in the group of two. So I guess I would say that. Yes, it would have been smarter um, because Russia's long-term power projection capabilities were just very low. It was an aging population. It was not a high-tech population. It was a petro uh, raw materials exporting state. It was it was authoritarian, but I mean, they they were comparable to, to the Ukrainians in terms of like corruption and all those other things. Uh, if you look at the, even Freedom House's rankings prior to the invasion, of course, they've changed things radically now. But I've still got pages saved from then where it showed that, you know, Ukraine was, you know, more corrupt, et cetera, et cetera. You know, Russia wasn't any place that, you know, was about to be a liberal utopia or anything, but it was certainly some place that, you know, should have been able to do business with them. I mean, if FDR could sit down with Stalin, it made no sense to me that someone like uh, Obama or Trump couldn't sit down with Putin. Uh, so I, I think I think the chances of that, uh, you know, went out the window during the Bush years. But um, yeah, I, I really think George would be yeah, George W. Bush, man. <laughs> yeah, George W. Bush, man. He just ruined everything. I mean, nobody has done anything good. I mean, Clinton had us on the wrong path, uh, you know, George H.W. Bush started us down the Middle East interventions, but like, man, George W. Bush just sucked. Yeah, well, I, I'm wondering about um, the current Biden policy toward China, um, because I saw there was a Council on Foreign Relations summit, I believe, with Secretary of State Blinken, and he was pressured by um, the president of the Council on Foreign Relations to, you know, talk about the fact that Biden has said uh, that we will defend Taiwan militarily three times, but that the White House has had to, uh, you know, take that back three times too. Uh, but recently, you know, people have visited Taiwan and it's or, or China, and um, it, it appears that they're trying to at least have more diplomacy. Um, but at the same time, you know, Nancy Pelosi has visited Taiwan. Um, so it seems like they're trying to speak out of both sides of their mouth and it's really not clear what the position is. Is it, is it just a continuation of strategic ambiguity or has the policy changed from Trump to Biden at all? Well, it's, it's hard to say. It's hard to say. There, there, there are definitely a lot of arguments uh, going on within the think tanks because the policy was always ambiguous, as you said. Uh, so it was never entirely clear. Like, I'm sure there were contingency plans for fighting the CCP over Taiwan, and there always have been. Whether or not those were going to be used was a different calculation. Uh, now, as far as understanding the apparently contradictory messages, on the one hand, I would say Joe Biden is a very old man and constantly makes slip ups, verbal slip ups. Like, I, yes, he said that repeatedly. I don't really know what to make of that. It's obviously dangerous to have the president of the United States saying stuff like that. But I think it's very telling that immediately after that, it's his handlers reeling those words back in. And when Blinken uh, made his statement following his recent trip, he said the policy has not changed. We are committed to the one China policy, committed to working towards peaceful reunification. I thought that was critical. And of course, what happened when he said this very ordinary repetition of what's been U.S. policy since before I was even born? He got crushed. He got crushed from all sides. Oh, he's weak. Oh, giving in to the Chinese. Oh, the communists. It's always the communists. It's not. They never say the Chinese or Beijing or Xi. They always say the communists. Giving in to the communists, you know. And Americans of a certain age are just hardwired to just like go with that stuff. Like even my dad, who, you know, talks with me all the time and so has gotten much better over the years on this stuff. So he he's told me, he said, something just clicks. You know, they start talking about the communists and you just immediately are like mad, mad about the communists. So, well, they, they uh, do the same thing in Russia, too, with the Soviets. I mean, uh, a lot of the the Democrats in favor of U intervention in Ukraine, they they pull on the same heartstrings. You know, it's it's the Soviets. You're yeah. you're just supporting the communists in Russia. I mean, yeah. it, it's probably because every single villain for the last 30 years has been in, in these Hollywood movies has been Russians or Chinese. Yeah. 
So I, I don't know. Uh, it's it's definitely uh, alarming because you can see that level-headedness is very much being confronted by the irrationality and bad incentive structures of domestic politics. Democratic politics are dangerous in that way. Uh, public opinion is fickle, and especially when it comes to foreign policy, people just aren't very informed. Um, and that's not, I personally don't think Americans need to be that informed because nothing really, uh, you had talked earlier, like what's the real strategic value of Taiwan? The real strategic value of Taiwan is to keep China penned in so that the U.S. military can continue to dominate the Southeast Asian maritime zone there. And they've said that specifically. Like, that is the threat that a rising China poses. Do Americans actually care about that? If you really sat them down, I, I don't think they would. Like, do you care if the if the U.S. fleet gets to, you know, steam around at, you know, the cost of tens of billions of your dollars a year, like, playing at empire like do you really care about that no i mean i i wouldn't i'd be glad to see the indians or the chinese or the japanese start to carry some some water there and you know patrol the sea lanes that would be great um and they and they are building that capacity i don't know that it's going to happen because it's it's going to require the american people making a deliberate decision i mean it's just like the whole defending the the gulfs the gulf lanes like there was a study that came out that showed the U.S. had misallocated something like $8 trillion over the course of 40 years defending these sea lanes that were never under threat from anything at all. Because the point was just to control them. It was just so that the U.S. military could control them and in the event of a conflict, turn off the world's oil supply at will. We in America are not dependent on Middle East oil. We don't. We really don't use it. We have our own and we have our own natural gas too. But Europe, China, Japan, all those places are dependent on those. And so it's like having, you know, your hand right there on the spigot, right? And if someone disobeys, you can just turn the spigot off. And that's the whole reason for these policies being. The only other thing that you'll hear people say, steel man-wise about China and Taiwan, is that right now, a lot of the high-grade microchips and microprocessors are made on Taiwan. Is that a reason to risk World War III? I personally don't think so. And I think that it, if there was ever a rationale for doing some good old fashioned industrial policy, this is it. If we're really going to argue about whether or not to risk hydrogen bombs getting traded back and forth over some chips, then we should spend what it takes to build them here. Period. Like, that's it. I mean, <laughs> I, wasn't, I, it, there, it, wasn't there a politician recently who said, that we should bomb some yes. um, microchip yes. facilities in Taiwan. Yeah. So TSMC. Can, can you summarize had... the, the argument there? Like what, okay. is it really sure. just that China would become, you know, the microchip um, superpower if they invaded Taiwan or, I mean, are there economic relationships with uh, some political elites within Taiwan? How, how, how can you, rationalize the arguments around the microchips. I mean, because we, I, I know that we are bringing microchip facilities here in the U.S. now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, well, first of all, I, I just because you just brought this up, I'm going to make a distinction here in case listeners are not aware. You know, a lot of times you'll hear Taiwan this, Taiwan that. Taiwan is not a uniparty. The Democratic Progressive Party are the crazies who want us to fight uh, mainland China for them. The KMT ironically, are actually the more conservative ones. They want to keep the status quo. They very frequently shuttle back and forth to Beijing to reassure them that, like, look, these other guys are crazy. You know, it's worth noting that they are the ones who caused the third the third on straits crisis, and they will cause uh, more problems. I'm looking forward to the elections in 2024, hoping that the KMT will win, because I think that will really settle things down. Uh, in regional elections this past year, uh, the KMT did terrific, did terrific. So hopefully uh, we can get some more level-headed uh, leadership in Taipei. That would be great. Um, in terms of, of the, the, the microchips, uh, China makes a lot of microchips, uh, but they're, they're fairly low-end ones. And so the idea here is you, again, I don't actually care about this, but Washington believes that it would be better from its perspective in terms of preserving the relative balance of power not to allow Beijing to have microchip autonomy. 
because it's the quote oil of the digital economy. And just like they like to have their, you know, their hand on the choke point of the oil that powered the old industrial economy, Washington would like to have its hand on the on the microchip source. They don't want China to have independence in either of these two things. The, they like the idea that in the event of a conflict with China, they can shut off China's oil. And the, these these microchips, they, they are important. They're important. They're, they're used in quantum computing, supercomputing functions. They're used in hypersonic missiles, all sorts of things, artificial intelligence. Uh, so if you are able to kneecap them uh, in terms of their access to these things, you're really going to slow their progress in terms of these next generation technologies. And that's why the United States has been working very, very hard to get uh, the Dutch, uh, the Koreans, the Japanese to try and uh, essentially adopt these very strict export controls. Um, it's been very politically fraught and, and the U.S. has been spending a lot of time on this and having varying degrees of success. But recently, China started to retaliate. Uh, in terms of limiting its exports to certain companies. And, and so so it's not good. None of this is good. If you are a person who wants peace and prosperity for the world, you should be against all of this stuff. Uh, it's going to, uh, at the bare minimum, it's going to make everything cost more uh, if it doesn't kill us all. So, yeah, I think, I mean, sometimes it really does appear that it boils down to just misunderstanding of, you know, economics and, <laughs> failure to recognize the benefits of trade and comparative advantage and division of labor. I mean, the idea that we actually need to dominate a country um, in order to secure, you know, the microchip industry instead of just trading with China uh, is, is crazy. Um, but so we, we've kind of talked about how conservatives, you know, conservatives, the ones who are actually good on the war in Ukraine, I think if if something were to boil over and start in Taiwan, they would they would immediately fall for it. And uh, they would they would be calling for troops defending Taiwan or or whatever it, it is true. Um, and a lot of the arguments that you hear are I mean, the microchips one is a is a really big one. But we also hear about the Uyghurs and yeah. the. Um, Slave labor is another term that you hear often. So what, what can we say about those things? I would say that there are horrible things happening all over the world. And that the only reason the U.S. State Department cares about this particular issue is because it is something they can whack, the, whack Beijing over the head with, period. That's it. That's it. The idea that Mike Pompeo cares about Muslims if you actually believe that I have a bridge to sell you on Neptune, like you clearly have been drinking uh, too much of the Kool-Aid, like the idea that the U S government cares about what's happening to some Muslims. Like, do you, do you not even watch the news? Right? Like uh, Matt Gates, who's been great on Ukraine, the report in the wall street journal comes out about, you know, is China going to have a listening outpost on Cuba? He's like, well, we got to invade Cuba now time to blow them up. And it's like, man, you suck. Come on, man. Don't fall for that stuff. Like, well, it's like, where, you know, where are you? you? You know, I mean, the U.S. The U.S. actually have troops and equipment on Taiwan, which is I find it so funny because it's like it's exactly the same situation. Right. Like Cuba is 90 miles from Florida. Taiwan is basically basically 90 miles from from the coast of China. And it's like, what are you guys kidding me? Like you can't no strategic empathy at all no ability to see things the way other people would see them. It's just, yeah, we've got China encircled with bases and hardware and military shit, and they're just supposed to take it, you know, and that's just how it, that's how it is. And uh, I, I don't really know. I mean, it, it's tough too, because someone like Matt Gates, there's, there's not like a terrible amount of pressure on him to behave in that way. Um, like him getting elected has nothing to do with that. Like there's no one pushing him hard to take those kinds of positions that he does. So on some level, I have to just imagine that he really does feel this way uh, about these issues. You know what I mean? Like someone like Nancy Pelosi or Kevin McCarthy, like you can see where the political pressure is for them to take the positions that they do and do the things that they do, you know, but someone like Matt Gates, it's, it, you can't really explain it on, on, on that basis. So 
Yeah, it's it's been really disappointing because um, Matt Gates is like one of the best on foreign policy, and I mean, yeah, even even my representative here, in Montana Rosendale, he's he's voted with Matt Gates on all of these issues, but uh, we we keep hearing about um, you know the Chinese spy balloon. Uh, that's that's a big Which... thing that we encountered in Montana, and actually, it's in the news again because apparently there are reports that another one was over Montana. Um, and, and the funny thing with that, before we dive into it, because I do want you to you to address that story. But um, I gave a speech at the Montana Capitol about like the risks of the Ukraine-Russia conflict and how um, it is not at all in Montana, Montana's interest to continue to support this this conflict because of our Minutemen missiles here in Montana. Like we are a primary target if nuclear war pops off. So I, I gave that speech and literally two days later, the Minutemen missiles are in headlines because we have this Chinese spy balloon allegedly over Montana. And I'm like, well, OK, if if we grant that these are Chinese spy balloons in the first place, and I know that's been disputed, um, why would they be hovering over Montana? It's because they, you know, be curious about our capabilities, our nuclear capabilities and uh, I just found it fascinating that when I drew attention to that immediately, it, it popped up in the uh, headlines. And, um, you know, we we have been so distanced from war and the con- consequences of war that it, it has been treated like television. Right. We just watch people bomb foreign countries while we're sitting in our living room. But as soon as we just get one appearance of another country, you know, entering our airspace, it, it's like we freak out, even if it's as silly as a thing like a balloon. So, um, yeah, that was a, a long tangent. But what what is the story behind the, the Chinese spy balloons? What What is your read? Are they really just weather balloons or um, do, do you buy the Chinese story on it? Well, I wrote at the time and listeners can go back if they want. And, and read the article that I wrote. It was called So Much Hot Air, The Fake China Threat Strikes Again. Where that week, when that was going on, I believe it was in late January, I followed the story and I had several thoughts on it. One of which was, even if these are spy balloons, they can't possibly be detecting anything more than they could with the, the the amount of low Earth orbit satellites that they already have watching us. Like, the Chinese are spying on us all the time using satellites in low Earth orbit, just like the United States is doing. So, like, I get it. It's a little unnerving to see one potentially with your eyes, like, right there. I get it. At the same time, I was never entirely convinced that that was what was going on. I also wasn't sure whether or not this wasn't something that was being done within the Chinese government to try and undermine a potential detente that was about to happen, because there were a lot of elements within the Chinese uh, political military bureaucracy who did not like how soft she was being in terms of like his response to Pelosi's visit, uh, you know, uh, not supporting Russia strongly enough. And, you know, maybe trying to send this balloon over the United States, knowing the shitstorm it would touch off, which Blinken immediately canceled his visit. So I wasn't entirely sure whether or not that might have been in play there. Uh, The Chinese government immediately fired the head of that department. They had said there was very little navigability, et cetera, et cetera. A couple days ago, Pentagon released a statement saying, yeah. It wasn't a spy balloon after all. I don't know if anyone caught that. It appeared on the Reuters wire. It was literally like six lines. Pentagon was like, yeah, it wasn't actually spying on anybody. So So there you have it. it. Was it just a weather balloon? It was stocked full of like over the counter, you know, American electronics. Looked like a weather balloon. The Chinese said it was a weather balloon. They've been floating these weather balloons for years. Pentagon said they knew about it. I also felt like... (laughs) So the thing is coming in, right? And the idea that the Pentagon couldn't take this... Like, let's say it really was a spy balloon. You're telling me the Pentagon can't shoot this thing down, but they're supposed to protect us from incoming ballistic missiles? Come on, guys. 
Like, obviously, they saw that thing coming over. It's good for them, right? That This all is to the good of the military, right? The military wants more money. They want more authority. These are ordinary people, and ordinary people cannot be trusted with power. They want more of it. So obviously letting this balloon just drift over the country and being like, maybe it's a spy balloon. Maybe it isn't. Could be housing EMPs or chemical weapons and just watching the nation freak out about it while they then go to Congress and say, well, we need more money for this. We need more money for that. The Chinese are a huge threat. Well, the American public is going to be a lot more willing to just shut up and give you whatever they want if they're scared out of their minds. And then six months later, you can just release a quiet little, yeah, it wasn't a spy balloon. We knew that, but it's whatever. And no one, no one's going to even, you know, bad an eye. They've already forgotten about it, you know. So I just thought that was an incredibly telling. I have a chapter on it in uh, the upcoming book, uh, The Fake China Threat and the Very Real Danger, about the, you know, quote unquote spy balloon, how the story never really made sense. And the whole way that it happened just screamed fake. Uh, you know, the idea that the military couldn't shoot it down, that it didn't know what it was. And then all of a sudden it knew that it was part of a vast conspiracy to spy on us. You know, and now I have to go make a note. Uh, I'm going to have to talk to my editor because we were just about done with this thing to send it to press. But I really want to include like, you know, footnote. The Pentagon eventually came out and we're like, yeah, we were lying to you guys. Don't worry about it. We'll get you next hey, time. <laughs> so have you seen recent reports that um, uh, another one of these things is in Montana? I mean, just within the last few I days. Didn't, I, I actually okay. didn't see that. No. I'll, I'll yeah. definitely look into it. No, I. Yeah, you should it, definitely check it out. Congressman uh, Rosendale has has talked about it a little bit. I think he's the only one. He's the only one I've heard it from. So, I mean, it could be made up. And you well, and you know what? I also thought, and I included this in the in the article, I think, or maybe I put it in the chapter. But this is just one of those examples where, you know what? Let's pretend it was a spy balloon. This clearly is not cool. It unsettled a lot of people. And it makes conducting diplomacy difficult. So in a more rational world, this would have been a good opportunity for Blinken to use his forthcoming trip to discuss some norms of overhead surveillance, you know, sort of a new open skies treaty between the United States and China. You know, it would be a good idea for the U.S. and China to be surveilling each other closely to make sure that no one's arming to do something else. It makes everyone feel more calm, more confident in their own security. I'm all for that stuff. It was a great thing that the U.S. had with the Soviets uh, and that. Uh, Trump ripped up with the Russians. But so I would be all for that. But again, the, the domestic politics of it makes it completely impossible. And, you know, you have these think tanks who, you know, literally directly benefit from selling more weapons, building more weapons, buying the academics at the think tanks who write the pieces that then the papers cite about why the Chinese are so dangerous and why we need to do this, that and six other things that don't even make sense. I don't know. It, it's it's pretty it's pretty infuriating at times uh, yeah. because this is seriously dangerous stuff. You mentioned the U.S. population being very insulated from war. My dad was in Vietnam. My grandfather was in Korea and in World War Two. And they obviously they both survived. Very fortunate. Um, but I spent a lot of time talking to them just kind of about and my grandfather sadly passed away uh, two years ago now. But he, he especially was very concerned toward the end of his life as things were starting to turn ugly because he was kind of one of those people who bought sort of the whole end of history thing. We did it. We won the future for our grandchildren. We fought so they wouldn't have to. And he was growing very concerned that war was just starting to be talked about like it was just kind of this casual. And he said, you guys just do not understand. You don't understand what real war was like, where they draft you, where there's rationing shortages, fear of, you know, aerial bombardment. He's, you know, the, the U.S. government has just been, you know, terror bombing a bunch of helpless brown people for the last 20 years. That's not what war is really like. You know, that's not what real war is like against an actual opponent who can fight back. Um, and I just feel like, you know, the, anyone who talks about, uh, you know, fighting China as a, a real possible uh, public policy choice, I mean, everything should be done to get them away from the levers of power. That's just unacceptable. The idea that we should fight a conflict with China or Russia who are armed to the teeth with hydrogen bombs is just stupid. And the idea that they won't because they haven't is not an airtight syllogism, right? Like no. the logic of that is pretty faulty. So, but it is where we are. I mean, anyone who came out and said, you know, we should be trying to de-escalate the war in Ukraine, the progressive caucus. They issued the weakest, most 
what a, I, I don't know if you remember the letter but they they submitted a letter saying that you know ukraine is great we love ukraine so much we want to support them maybe we should look towards some kind of negotiations though that might be a good idea they were shouted down and had retracted their letter within the day that's where we are um it's just dangerous. We've come to a very dangerous place and we came here by choice. And it's very, very reminiscent of the 1950s. Uh, you know, we got this whole new red scare going on where they're just arresting people and, you know, digging into people's stuff. It's very weird stuff. And uh, I always think of that Abraham Lincoln quote, you know, uh, as a nation of free men, you know, all the armies of the world could not take a drink from the Shenandoah or the Potomac. We'll either live forever or die of suicide. You know, that's where we are, you know, and we're doing it so that people like Anthony Blinken or Jake Sullivan don't have to, you know, go out and get a real job and can play, you know, play Empire all day. And that's that's really all it is. And it's boosting, you know, Raytheon's profits and Lockheed's profits. And that's it. You know, so they don't actually have to produce real products that people need. I mean, it's just it's incredible. But it public choice theory wise, concentrated benefits, diffuse costs, it all makes sense. You know, if you just look at it from, you know, the perspective of an economist, just looking at the choice architecture that people face, it's not complicated why this is all happening. And on some level, I do have to blame the American people for it. Like, this is their fault to some degree. Like, they're easily manipulated. They're supposed to be the ones who are accountable. They're supposed to be the ones putting the pressure on their Congress people. And there's just not enough. There's just not enough people doing those things. Because when you talk to actual elected representatives, which I know you do and so do I, they do check to see what people are calling in about. And if they were getting inundated with angry calls about the stuff, they would support it because they all they care about is getting reelected. Like 99.9% of them, that's all they think about. That's all they care about is making sure that they get back where they are. So it's really just a matter of, you know, on some level, trying to fight that apathy, trying to get people educated, doing the outreach work. And I, you know, thankfully the internet podcast, I feel like it's, it's getting way better. It's way better than it was. The, the decentralized media and news environment has been good for libertarianism, for the anti-war community. And, uh, you know, we just have to keep going. We have to keep pushing to, to make these policy changes happen. Yeah. So, um, just when looking at all the, the puzzle pieces and how everything's coming together, I mean, it, it is pretty terrifying when when you think of how insulated Americans are, because uh, while the Biden administration appears to be escalating still uh, with with Russia and I mean, you know, there are rumors of war in China and, and Taiwan as well. Um, you know, the, the military recruitment and retainment numbers are extremely low. And uh, the, the Republican talking point about that, um, about, you know, the Biden administration destroying the military. I, I do think that there is still some truth to that, even though libertarians themselves aren't, uh, you know, for a strong military. Like the fact that we are racing toward two conflicts with with major countries while um, we we were just off of the the coattails of a vaccine mandate that drove a lot of people out of the military. Um, and, you know, they have con consistently failed to meet their recruitment numbers. Um, it, it's really scary because there's been talk about, you know, passing legislation that would require women to sign up for the draft. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering if you think that there is any potential for a conflict with uh, China to pop off. I mean, what would that look like and what would conflict with China look like? What What is their capabilities? Um, what are the conditions that would, would lead to war with China right now? And do you think that's a, a possible threat while they're, they're fighting a war in Ukraine right now? Other than hydrogen bombs and the means to deliver them, and destroy all life on the planet, their strategy is based on defense. It's an area denial strategy. It was developed in the late 1990s after the third Taiwan Straits crisis. This was when the United States, once again, used naval power, sail the aircraft carrier in between the mainland and Taiwan as a show of force. 
After this happened, there was a reorientation of Chinese military doctrine, force posture, and procurement and development away from fighting a theoretical big land war against someone like the Russians or the Indians, although, of course, they still maintain the capacity to do that to some extent. Instead, they began working very hard to develop missiles in order to uh, have a standoff ability uh, to keep American ships away from Taiwan. There's a book, uh, I think it's called The Year of the Rat, that talks about how uh, the Chinese procured this missile technology uh, from the Clinton administration, actually. It's an interesting book. Um, but they now have plenty of these carrier killer missiles. They have thousands of these intermediate and short-range missiles that could destroy anything that came around Taiwan at all. They've got plenty of submarines. Uh, they have a very large, though light, navy. You'll hear it said that China has the biggest navy in the world, yada, yada, yada. Their ships are super tiny. Their ships are very small. Uh, they don't actually float big tonnage ships. Like the U.S. is still way ahead in terms of tonnage and certainly in terms of firepower. Uh, but one of these missiles, one of those ships, you know, the math does not work out well. Uh, so uh, what could start where the Chinese have no interest in fighting a war with us. They Beijing has been explicit all along, even going back to when relations were normalized between uh, Washington and Beijing, that the, the thing that would start a war was if Taiwan declared independence and the U.S. attempted to intervene to uh, safeguard their independence. And that's it. So uh, if the status quo holds up, I don't see any reason uh, for China to invade uh, simply because the laws of economics and relative power are somewhat in their favor. I think they think that uh, in Beijing. I mean, there is a real, if you look at the literature, American declinism is like a big thing there. Uh, in, in Chinese policy circles, they really do believe that like Washington's power is, is, is on the way down and that if they just wait this thing out by 2050, it'll be a foregone conclusion. They won't even need to do anything uh, that it'll just be theirs. Um, again, that, that's why I think it's very important that things stay the way they are. Uh, I do not think uh, any encouragement should be given uh, to, to the Taiwanese to declare independence. And so I think it was good that Blinken sent that very clear, unmistakable signal in his message recently. Janet Yellen, uh, Treasury Secretary, is in China right now. Uh, not sure what's going to come of her trip. She is considered uh, the most, uh, I guess, if the, the press will probably call her dovish, dovish on China. Uh, but she has very, actually, surprisingly sensible things to say uh, about the importance of the U.S.-China relationship for the world and for the economy. So it'll be interesting to see what she comes back with. But it will be good to see the temperature turn down. Uh, you know, the Blinken visit did not go horribly. I know they didn't really want to see him because they don't really like him very much. Uh, they think he's just a rabid hawk. Uh, but things went pretty well. Um, they want China's cooperation on certain global issues. They know they need it. Uh, China's too big to ignore. Uh, and, and their power is such that they can have what they want in their immediate vicinity uh, at a cost that's probably acceptable to them, more acceptable to them than to us. Um, you talked about lack of recruitment and stuff. Uh, the Chinese have millions, millions of extra young men with no job, no girlfriend who are all hyped up on Chinese nationalism. And I think it'll be a lot easier for Xi to whip them into a frenzy to go fight the American imperialists over Taiwan or something like that than it would be to get, you know, our people, our teenagers, you know, or whatever the case may be, you know, to go fight for what, you know? So, uh, so a lot of tips, right. And, and I'm, I'm just curious about, your perspective on the Republican position on this, because it appears that a lot of the time um, the reason they're good on Ukraine is because they want to pivot toward China. Um, yeah. But yeah. do you, is it your read that if a DeSantis like candidate were to get in there, that they actually would start to escalate with China? Or do you think that they're more interested in Iran? Um, 
is it like that they would actually back off from engaging in with, with China and Russia altogether and focus on Iran? Or do you think that they, I mean, escalate everywhere? Well, politically, it's not going to be possible for either, for, for someone like DeSantis, like just the where the money comes from, what the environment is like. I think DeSantis's initial inclination toward the Ukraine war, which was to say it's not part of our vital national interest, like that's definitely more in line with the Republican base, but it is not in line with the donor class. And that is important because running for president costs a lot of money. And especially when he's running against Trump and Trump is going to get a lot of those uh, you know, America first or types who, you know, maybe want to end the conflict with, uh, you know, Russia to focus on China. Um, so I don't think DeSantis could could run that way. I think he'd have to take a more establishment position, which is what he's done. And the establishment favors toughening up against China. Uh, they view China as, as, a, as a big time threat to being able to do whatever they want uh, in Southeast Asia and to lord it over Southeast Asia. Um, I think there's a lot of frustration. Uh, some people like Pete Navarro, who have gotten their hands more and more on policy, who for years had been huge critics of the, you know, quote unquote, engagement policy that was trying to integrate China into the capitalist economy, et cetera, et cetera, who basically are saying, see, you idiots, we told you not to do that. Now look how strong they are. You know, so they're definitely you've got a lot of people uh, like Matt Pottinger is another one, too, who are super hawkish, who are just, you know, we told you guys all along. And so everyone's just kind of clearing the deck like, you know, yeah, we were wrong. You know, everybody wants to get on the right side of, of the, the orthodoxy in Washington. You know, nobody wants to get caught. Just like free trade used to be a, a gospel among Republican voters. Now, I mean, if you ran on free trade, I mean, you, you, you wouldn't even make it out of the primary. You wouldn't even be close. So things change. Orthodoxies change. Political parties are just, you know, vehicles for expressing, you know, the interests who have the power to coordinate and, you know, push the policies that they want to see. And conflict with Ukraine and conflict with China get a lot of people paid. Uh, and that's important. And, you know, the American people, you know, have become accustomed to just kind of ignoring foreign policy because it just doesn't really touch their lives very much. And, uh, yeah, it's it's definitely dangerous. I, I I think Iran would be a would be a real dangerous one with DeSantis because he's crazy about Iran. All the worst lies about Iran, he repeats them. Uh, there was a speech he gave at the Hudson Institute, which the Hudson Institute is just awful. Um, he gave a speech at the Hudson Institute when he was a congressman about the dangers of Iran and how they back Al Qaeda and you know just all the all the biggest bunch of BS, you know, so he's horrible on Iran. And I also think DeSantis could usher in like a really bad repetition of like the worst parts of the Reagan years in terms of like getting really involved in, in Central America. Uh, Cause he's, he's definitely, he's definitely mentioned, uh, mentioned that in speech. I wrote an article for anti, sorry, antiwar.com. I think it was last year or two years ago. Um, DeSantis in future foreign policy disasters or something like that. This was back when his name was getting floated as a possibility. And people were like, yeah, he'd be great. And I said, well, be careful what you wish for. You know, this guy is a former, you know, officer in the military who went to Yale and Harvard. Like he is as establishment as it gets. You know, he has that ability to tap in to that America first feeling and vibe. But like, that's not who he is. Um, it's not where he came from. So I think he, I think he would be his his he would he would be dangerous his 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 presence would be very dangerous I think yeah I, I agree and and many people fail to mention that he has a record in Congress and it it wasn't yeah, yeah. that great on on foreign policy and I I've actually tweeted out a video I'll have to share it again once this interview goes up um, of of him talking about Iran and he says uh, the the greatest thing in the world for peace would be if um, if we actually funded the protesters in Iran and they threw out the government there. Uh, so I, I think that's a, that's a very serious threat. Um, but we're, we're coming up on the, on the hour here. Um, I, I'd love to have you back on uh, once the book comes out so you can promote it. Um, but for Great. now, wh where can people find your stuff? Sure. Uh, so like I said, Joseph Soli Smolin, 
I'm a I'm at the Libertarian Institute. Uh, you can follow me at Solis underscore Mullen on Twitter. Uh, I do tweet a fair amount. Uh, otherwise, that's that's pretty much it. Uh, keep an eye out for the book, the fake China threat, and the very real danger. Awesome. Well, thank you. Thanks so much, Liam. Appreciate it. Keep up the great work. You too. All right. Well, there you have it. I'd like to thank Joseph for joining me for this one. And as always, thanks to Dave versus Goliath for all the music you hear on the show and to our producer, Simon Kelpin. And thanks, of course, all of you who are subscribed to our email list and support the pack. Uh, you can do both of those things over at takehumanaction.com. And please remember to like, comment and share the podcast. And thanks for watching. We'll see you on the next show.